Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. With us, Dormain Dorwitz. And uh, Dormain, you and I met long ago. Did I say your name right? No. <laughs> your last name? No, Drewitz. Dre. Drewitz. Oh my God! Yeah, I screwed it, it up. She gave you a cue. She gave, <laughs> gave me the cue, and I still screwed it up. Amazing! Okay. I'm so sorry. Okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, it's just funny um, how it's like, oh, here, that's that's a new one. Literature <laughs> too. You 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 came up with the, the alliterative. I version. totally did. Yes. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So we met uh, for the first time pre-pandemic at a spring one in Austin, Texas. I think it was. Yeah. And at the time you were working at VMware, we were hanging out with Josh Long, a good buddy, Josh. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. But anyways, I've, since then I've, you know, followed you on Twitter and seen awesome stuff from you. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about something that I don't think we've really talked about, which is kind of like this whole world of like, like, how do you, what happens after you deploy, how do you deploy it in a, whatever your application is in a way that's stable and reliable and yeah. And they're, I guess that's like the illities. Yeah. You know? DevOps and, and things like that. And yeah. SRE. Um, so I'll start with a question around this. Okay. Like, okay. Like you get your thing, you get it into production. What is the, what's, what's like the biggest thing that people need to know when they, when they move to that step of production? Yeah. Like, is there like a mindset or a approach or like, what's the framework for, for that side of life? Mm. Um, I don't think I've ever thought about it in those terms. Cause there's, you know, when you look at the, you know, the, in the infinity loop of DevOps and I'm, I'm drawing those with my fingers right now for people who are just listening. What, what is the infinity loop of DevOps? I, I can't, there's like, it's like, uh, uh, you know, it's like plan monitor, uh, test monitor. I can't even remember all the stages, right? React, but it's like, react to your pager going off and then have, <laughs> a, and then have a, a retrospective on what went wrong. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm making this up. Yeah. Those are, that's like the SRE. Definitely like the postmortem is kind of that one of the, the SRE principles, but, okay. um, it's, it's, and I like that you included mindset because maybe that's actually a better way because otherwise it's really easy, I think, for people to get locked in on, oh, what is the tool that I need? What is what is the, you know, what's the most yeah. important, the one thing if I, if I you know, um, add this to my code, then I'm done, right? Just it's like, sprinkle, no. sprinkle some of this magic, you know, whatever on it and, and, yes. and production, everything is going to be good. Just let me, what cow do I need to trade for what beans to put in the ground? And then we're good. Yeah. Um, but I think, and there's like, there are some great, I think Kevin Hoffman talks about like scaffolding, right? And it's it, definitely things like, yeah, have a way to observe and monitor your code, right? Like you're going to need that. And there's things you can do earlier on um, to just prepare for that. But I mean, that's pretty well understood at this point. And so it's, I think, um, you know, one thing that is, it starts to bump up to more, whether it's mindset or whether it's more that socio-technical problem, hmm. um, does have to do with the accountability question, right? Which is whose job is it? If this stops working, right? Or something's going wrong, something's, and that it's a deceptively simple question because um, even the whole, you know, you, you code it, you own it, um, sort of mantra, right. That, it, you know, is uh, attributed back to Werner Vogels and, and AWS. It's like, yeah, it's still not that simple because, you know, you're, you, you're not literally the developer who's writing that code is the, the, they're not all the way down to like, I'm literally like racking the server. Right. I mean, you know, that's like, that's some, they're depending somewhere on an AWS service. Yeah. There's, there's layers of these dependencies and abstractions. Exactly. And so you can't say you code the, it, you own it because with the dependency graph of a running service, 
you can't possibly own everything that is <laughs> and be responsible for everything that is underneath a given service. Right. And this is kind of where I think like the the concept of you know platform engineering is it is useful because it's sort of saying that there's like, hey, there's gonna be this layer um of of folks who are sort of taking accountability up to a certain point, right? Up to the point of, you know, the code uh, or at least like the code getting into a container, maybe the developer owns like up to that layer, but, but then everything from there, how much can you offload? And then, then, you know, a developer can say, okay, I, I do take accountability for everything up to that point because I, I actually truly feel like I'm empowered to control those pieces. Um, cause I think it's not realistic to, you know, ask someone to take accountability for something that they don't really have any control over. Right. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's where it's this really interesting, uh, dynamic that involves, Hey, you have to think about your teams and, and what are different teams responsible for? Um, you go back to a model. If you don't have a platform and a developer is like, well, I have to put in 15 different tickets to get, you know, the different pieces I need. And it went from, hey, sure, it was fast to get a VM and then layers of, well, now we need to make sure that each VM is loaded up with um, different bits of middleware and monitoring and management around it that's not really used by the developer. It's used by some other team, but now it means that it's going to take three months to to just get a VM out so that a developer can work with yeah. something. So things for broke, example, right? yeah, you know, like we um, a week or so ago we had the Rust developer retreat here, and one of the attendees has spent a lot of time tuning the JVM on deployments, mm-hmm. you know, garbage collector and all the other things. And he observed, he goes, you know, without a garbage collector and all the attendant stuff, there's nothing to tune. It's already mm-hmm. running as fast as it can. Yeah. So, which kind of struck me. It's like, wow, how much time do we spend tuning? Turning knobs that maybe yeah. shouldn't exist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it just takes them all away. Yeah. So yeah. W- back to the mindset, it sounds like it, at least on this aspect, maybe the mindset is you, when you go to production, you should have it clearly defined who is responsible for which pieces. And you can't just say simply, oh, the developer owns owns the the production of this because there's like security incidents there's network operations there's you know all these different different dimensions and you need to like look at that whole landscape and say who actually owns these individual pieces of it and and if something goes wrong how does somebody know and how does it get resolved right am i getting to like a a mindset around production (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a big part of it. And then from there, like when those things are clear, then that that often drives the behavior that needs to happen in order for those outcomes uh, to exist, right? And if the outcomes are, hey, that you know, I, I, like DevOps being I think most succinctly defined as it's not a tool chain or a, a, you know, use these technologies and beanstalks and, you know, wizards happen. It's like, it's just doing what you need to do so that you can ship code to production faster and more frequently. And Mm -hmm. that part about you got to be able to ship it to production because it's like all the, I, I can do things really fast in my development environment, but it can't get to production is like, well, you've solved it. That's a different problem. Excuse me. Um, So that's kind of an operative word. Um, Higher quality code. Uh, And so, and what does that mean? Right. There's, (laughs) it's more stable. It's, um, it's more secure. Right. 
So there's that kind of brings with it, okay, now I have to think about what are the types of, uh, what am I doing in order to make sure that at the, at the end, what I'm shipping into production is going to be higher quality. Um, yeah. So I'm going to write some tests. You can't just assume that. that your platform engineering team is going to take your crappy application that's crashing all the time and somehow magically make it stable. It's, right. You've got to you know do as much upfront as you can to create that stability so that the platform engineering team hopefully has to do a lot less or your SRE team or whoever it is, right? Has to do a lot less to add that stability to the, the foundation. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because it's like, we've come a long way, right? With underlying platform technologies and, you know, it's like Kubernetes, for example, is it's going to restart, right? If something is, is failing within like its sort of scope of control. It will be restarting and sort of, okay, you told me that you wanted this configuration of containers running and talking to each other in this way. And if something's going wrong, I'm just going to kill that one. I'm going to start a new one. And what that means, like that so could like be really early. horrible. It's like, like um, but it's yeah. resuscitating, right? It's just going to be constantly resuscitating back to the state that you told it. But yeah. that means that you need to make sure that your application is prepared to do that. Um, mm. And so, you know, maybe that's less of a concern with like something that people are building now, but a lot of organizations then have just, you know, piles of, legacy code and applications where they're like, Ooh, you don't actually, the restart process is pretty gnarly. And so yeah. we just keep kind of like adding, you know, uh, duct tape and bailing wire to kind of keep this thing up and alive because no one wants to restart this thing. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like, you know, you think about that, that, that can fix a lot of problems, but it, if, uh, if it's going to introduce, like a major outage, then no one wants to do that. And it also means that you can't entrust Kubernetes to run that for you. You have mm -hmm. to do some refactoring. Because that's Kubernetes only mode is let it fail and then restart it. Yeah, there's you sort of like that. It, but... Yeah, you're there's that like the fundamental sort of cloud native approach is instead of assuming like, Hey, you build things and then they, they will, they will run forever until you tell them to stop is like, no, 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 things fail. Right. So we're going to take a cloud native approach, which is we're going to accept that failures happen at all kinds of different levels. And instead of that being something that is um, an abnormal event that we are scrambling to deal with, we embrace it as like, that is normal. And now how do we build around that, right? How do we just assume that's what is our, our default mode to handle those types of failures? Um, and so that like, there, there's, there's technology layers that can help with these things. And that's certainly been, you know, in the last five, six, seven years, right? This kind of emergence of platform teams where it's like, hey, Kubernetes provides like a, a, a really useful um, set of primitives that allow me to build something that is um, really powerful, but I, I still have to do a lot of work around it um, in order to create something that a developer is like, oh, okay, now I understand this is, these are the sort of the contracts that I have between what I'm building and maybe containerizing and handing over and what that platform is going to do. And that's yeah. the point at which, you know, to, to what you were saying, James, like this is like, okay, now I'm willing to accept accountability for that. Versus yeah. the platform team is like, Hey, we, we actually own everything up to that point And we accept accountability for making sure that those pieces are working. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So like clearly delineating who is responsible for what, um, is is key to this but i'm sure it's also like very hard because you there's i'm sure spaces that you get into where 
who owns this? Oh, you're in a space that either is multi-owned or mm-hmm. unclear who owns this particular piece of, of the production infrastructure or some failure mode that you didn't expect or something like that, that, that makes things, you know, oh, we didn't think about that. We didn't think that right. it could fail in this well, way. My code is working. That's right. I, yeah. I've tested it. It must be the platform. <laughs> yeah. People. Yeah. Finger well, pointing. This, yeah. This is, this is then like, well, what's interesting also is like you have, uh, you have like those sort of, mm, I don't know, like the minor failure, right? It's like, hey, not everything is down, but you've gotten, you're sort of like a, uh, it's a quiet failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, a microservices architecture, right? It's like the whole thing isn't down, but if you look closely, like that entire feature is not showing up right the end user like they they maybe because the other parts of it are working i mean that's actually a great design is that okay we can gracefully fail and have have one piece that's failing and it's not taking everything down right that's that's like we've come a long way there um but if it's a if that happens to be something like the the checkout feature (laughs) (laughs) right like that's that's pretty critical um uh, or someone someone hopefully is responsible for knowing that a particular feature has gone down (laughs) you know maybe it's air air rate monitoring or i'm sure different approaches for how someone would know that some piece of the overall system has gone down and then you know figure out what to do about that but yeah well that's where it's a combination of things between how do the how do each of those teams that have kind of clear ownership for their parts and pieces, um, how, how have they set up their own monitoring? Um, and, but it, to your point about like, Ooh, it can get more complicated because, well, my code is working, but it's, it, the feature still isn't showing up because something else, somewhere else. Right. And you know, it's probably mm-hmm. DNS, but um, <laughs> probably DNS. Like, you've got to have, uh, you know, this is where, how do you then correlate across mm. several different layers to be able to understand uh, where, where is that issue happening? And then the other part that's um, kind of remarkable is actually the, uh, the fact that like a huge number of times, like a, if it's a customer facing type of feature, a large percentage of the time, it your monitoring systems don't catch it at all, um, and it can it can vary widely. I think I've seen um, stats out there that it's like fifty ish percent. I know that I've seen like internal case studies where you know it was ninety five percent of the time they were finding about a customer facing issue yeah. because customers were reporting it. Um, so we, you know, we, we actually have built in, um, like applications that sit inside what the customer support teams, they use like Salesforce and Zendesk and those, those types of systems. So we've actually built in a widget there so that they can flag that. And some of the data in terms of now we're, we're able to look at it across lots of organizations and like, sure enough, it's like, you know, about a third for organizations that are like, yep, they've got all their monitoring systems painted, pointed at PagerDuty, but they're also have it wired into their customer support team. And like a third or so of the, the incidents in their, those environments, like, a, you know, average, a third of them are coming in from that customer support From channel. customers reporting it, not the monitoring system detecting right. an issue. So how would you, I mean, we're almost back to the JavaScript discussion because a lot <laughs> of those things are, how would you monitor the end user UI? I have a philosophy on this. Yeah, that, what's that? that? I think that some of the foundational problems in in where we are generally with programming is that our programming models have not forced people to explicitly deal with error conditions and that leads to hidden errors all the way across the stack and more modern 
programming technologies make it so that you can't just just glide down the happy path that ignores the possibility mm-hmm. of all the failures. And of course, we've talked about this with Zio, and I think Rust is you know Very much. really driving Super. this forward. But it's like no, like like I'm sorry, it's going to be painful for you, but you're going to have to program for the possibility that these things can fail painful at first i think once you get used to it it's like yes of course i want i want it to be painful now and not later exactly right so yeah so i think some of this has to really be a a shift in programming culture Mm -hmm. to to not being able to easily ignore the fact that things can fail yeah and we're we're in that transition right now i I guess so but there's a whole lot of people using javascript for uis and well, WebAssembly can can change a lot of that, you know. So there, it requires opt-in, but there is ways in JavaScript, for example, to set like a global error catch handler uh-huh. that any un- other uncaught exception or whatever can then be fed into PagerDuty or some other guess system. So, but, that's but I'm sure it gets time. so noisy in most yeah. most applications yeah. that they just end up turning it off. And that's they're still, like, oh, there's right. a whole lot of uncaught errors we didn't do. Exceptions with. happen at runtime. Mm. Um, so do you know, like, it, how predominant is the use of things like Chaos Monkey? I mean, you're familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, I don't know exactly. I think we're still like pretty early, if I had wow. to guess, in terms of people really, because that takes a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's like, you're then looking at, you have to have a team that is actively working on, okay, we're going to, we're going to run a game day. Um it was actually a, a great interview uh, from a couple weeks ago, uh, where Mandy Walls, one of our 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 advocates, uh, sat down with you know a couple of folks in our own like SRE team um, and uh, database reliability engineering team to talk about like ten years on this journey of Failure Fridays <laughs> and just like the practice that that involves because things are you're it's not like, okay, we just do this for a couple of, uh, of Fridays or whatever, you know, pick, pick your interval. And what's a, what's a failure Friday. It's like sort of setting aside and scheduling the time for when you're going to be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to introduce some, um, instability into the system. And it's going to try and break our system. We're going to try. I mean, that's what you do with like a a chaos monkey or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the idea is if you're, I mean, this just sort of like general chaos engineering principles is like, it's not about like just haphazardly breaking stuff. Um, you're, you're, you want to run it more like an experiment, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, get scientific about it. And so you, you might pick a certain part of um, the architecture that you're like, okay, we know we're going to sort of test here and, you know, but everyone's going to be ready and we're going to prepare people. And then we're going to, really closely observe what is what happens when this type mm. of failure occurs so we're going to do did, we're going to monitor and catch it did you know right did, yeah did are, it catch are people it? responsible for for this yeah did 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 it cause something else uh to sort of was there know, some cascading the failure in one place and like the air all pushes over somewhere else so just sort of understanding like, okay, what's the, what is the, the nature of this type of thing? Mm. Um, and it's not like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll cover 10% this week. And after 10 weeks, we'll have covered a hundred percent. It's like, it doesn't work <laughs> that way. Like, you know, one, cause you know, you're not going to cover like 10%. Like, how do you, how do you even quantify that? Yeah. But also you're constantly changing, right? So what you what you sort of tested uh, last quarter, um, if you're releasing frequently, like it's it's you're just dealing with a different uh, a the different system is always evolving. It's yeah. always evolving, and so there's always kind of you know it just becomes like this practice, like brushing your teeth, right? That's just yeah. uh, that becomes, I think, more of the again, it's like it's a socio technical problem that. Mm. 
thinking about who is accountable for that and who is going to own that. And it's certainly yeah. something that like the site reliability engineering team is it, it fits really well within sort of their charter, but they they're not going to do it in a vacuum, right? Like to really do that. Well, like it's all, every team has to be sort of on board and all yeah. the different engineering and development teams like kind of have to sort of be bought in on the fact that's like, Hey, when we do this, like one, we're going to surface stuff that at the end of the day, like it's your job to fix. Um, we're just going to approach it in a way that's going to help try to surface these things before yeah. they surface in a way that we're not prepared for. And we don't really want to be in that situation or it's going to affect customers. Well, it's almost like the, the similar to the, the security red team who's trying to, yes. to find the holes through, you know, in security there, this is being done on a um, reliability kind of dimension. And yeah. so, um, but it does seem like you need to have a culture in place that, that wants to understand ahead of time how things can fail and establish ownership and, and um, make sure that, that, you know, the, the cases are all covered. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely insightful that you point out that this is like the socio-technical issue of like somebody has to care about this for there to for things to get better i guess yeah and you're you're gonna cross team boundaries and it's just like you know an architecture with different services and you're thinking about um you know data is gonna cross some boundary from from one service to another and there's there has to be an agreement between those and i i often think of like apis are promises they are agreements between you know, like from one service to any other service is like, this is our promise of when you, when you, when you ask this way, we will answer this way. Yeah. And the, what's the socio-technical um, element is that it's like, you also have the humans on the other side, which is what is the agreement between different teams around whether it's like we're going to uh, simulate a failure, like for the sake of, you know, being the wiser of our own vulnerabilities. Um, I should choose a different word because that's obviously a loaded word. But being the wiser of our, our own um, uh, weaknesses. Yeah. And, um, you know, but that the, the team that might be really skilled at being able to help surface those may not be the team that's actually going to fix the problem. Yeah. yeah you're going to run into the Dunning-Kruger effect there a lot. <laughs> Dunning-Kruger effect. Okay. Oh, that's the one where the less you know, the more you think, you know. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, so the failure Fridays, is that what it's called? Is and is that just a pager duty practice, or is that like a more industry wide thing? I mean, that's definitely what the pager duty practice has been. I, I'm okay. not even, you know, I think like, um, yeah, I remember talking to Tammy um, Buto over at uh, back when she was at Gremlin years ago, and I really liked the way she kind of broke it down and in a very, it's like it's a very scientific thing, um, and she would call them game days, right? So the idea of like you you're going to schedule a game day of like, this is when we're going to run this test. So if it's Friday, I mean, like failure Friday has a little bit of a nice ring to it, I guess. Um, and it but does. The, so the interesting thing about failure Friday is that if you do happen to cause some catastrophic issue, then your weekend is torched. So it's funny that, that Friday is the, the day that they do it. I wonder if that makes people a little reluctant, like maybe we shouldn't go kill this node because, oh man, that could cascade in some bad way. But yeah. well, that would be, well, I, I should, um, you know, you should hear from, from Rich and uh, SJP because they're really the experts on it. But it's, I, the other thing is like, you know, the goal isn't to like trigger something that would be super catastrophic and go into the weekend. But um point is the other thing with it is like, Hey, that's a weekly cadence. That's like, um, 
this is not something that you do and forget for three months and then try to revive again. Like it's the same thing with certain types of even just like how you check in with people. Uh, If you're doing it monthly, like what happens if you miss one and you've gone two months, like a sixth of the year has gone by um, between whatever it is you're trying to do or keep on top of. So it's got to be a practice that you have a cadence to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, so the, it does seem like, like there's this like huge socio-technical kind of cultural aspect to getting to higher reliability. Um, how, how do we get developers to care more about reliability? I mean, one of the things that I, you know, the, the, you code it, you own it sort of mantra, right. And, and it's, it's the painful way, right? Which is like, okay, you carry the pager. Um, and then you have an incentive to make sure that what you're putting out there is more reliable. Um, uh, that's that's a little bit of, I think, the, the stick method. Um, and it really needs to be uh, paired has with... Has, has uh, it, like- I, I think it has definitely worked in a lot of organizations but again it has to be paired with like okay are we also like giving people the time to make sure that they're like they're writing the test so that they are have a higher degree of confidence in what they are shipping um have we if we embrace that do we have kind of the other um uh scaffolding for teams like i think that's that'd be pretty cold if it was like you're just gonna have to figure this out Right. It's like right, and then there's this McKinsey report that just came out where they go, "Yeah, we know how to measure developer productivity now. We we made up some new stuff to do that, and it's causing all kinds of." And it's like, well, okay, now the pr- push is going to be for we want our developers to be more productive. And what you're right. talking about is saying, eh, "Let's slow down. Let's take a breath and think about what we're doing more, and maybe not crank." Yeah. Yeah. Like you, if, are you giving people time? Right. And there's even um, like charity majors had some great insights uh, on this around thinking about when you're the time that you're putting people on, like, Hey, you're on call in this window. Right. And so you're the person who is going to be interrupted to go deal with anything. And many of these things are probably small and not literally taking it down, but you know, probably like need to be dealt with. And um, the, the mental mode that you're in, right. Are you, are you really doing, okay, we'll just, you're still on feature development, except you're also going to be on call in this window and you're going to get interrupted a bunch versus what if you took that time of like, okay, if you're, if you're on call, you know, say 20% of the time for your team or 10% of the time, it's like, what if that's the time where you actually go back and you work through some of the old tech debt, right? That's been causing these issues. And so again, it's like, what is the, um, what's that? It's not just like scaffolding in a, in a, uh, like an infrastructure way. Like, do you have like good CICD pipelines that are helping people, you know, uh, make sure everything is, well tested and covered before like sure that's important but then there's that again socio-technical the culture around it that's saying like okay we're we're embracing this and we're also like we're we're figuring out how do we spend that time on really working through the underlying issues so i've also talked to teams who are like yeah like we've got our on-call rotation but like the number of times that actually gotten woken up in the middle of the night in the last year is like zero, right? Because we've actually, we've taken the approach and done the work. So we have a really high degree of confidence in the code that we have. And we also like know that like, listen, not everything is worth waking someone up in the middle of the night for. So you have to like spend a little bit of time, like setting your, like, what is really high urgency, you know, and, and that's just a willingness to understand uh, what, what does the business actually tolerate? 
Um, and this kind of comes back to a lot of site reliability engineering principles, right, around uh, an SLO. Um, and Sorry, the, SLO? Oh, sorry, uh, service level objective, right? Which is to not everything is like five nines. Like five nines is like a, a really expensive threshold to hit in terms of everything from the design principles to just like the people and around the, like it's really expensive to figure that out because there's going to be so many points of failure across all the different layers, right? It's just, it is a hard problem to solve. A lot of things don't need five nines, right? Some things only need three nines. Some things like it's okay if it's less. So instead of trying to like paint the world of like, we're going to make everything a really super high uh, uh, availability rate, which means that the uh, the error budget that you have is basically, well, what's 100% minus whatever you've set? That is your error budget is whatever, that's what's left. So if it's 99%, you get 1% error budget. And you have to remember like, well, my underlying services that I'm depending on, like those are going to eat some of my error budget. So if I'm going to run on this cloud service, then that cloud service is not a hundred percent. Right. So it's going to be on foundations that are already yeah. taking some of your air budget from you. Right. So like, you know, I remember talking to um, a team and it was like, they were their their internal team, not naming names, internal team was like, we're, we want you to move to our internally built platform. And we're trying to do all these things. And that engineering team was like, you're, um, I've looked at it and it would consume too much of my error budget, right? I will not go to that platform until you can improve the availability of it because until then, I'm actually doing better taking accountability for more of the stack or using some other provider, which sure, I might actually have to do more. Um, I have to engineer deeper like layers of the of the stack, but I trust that more. Right. And so that's what that's like the the agreement that you have to kind of be able to offer something that's like, am I offering something better than this person could do themselves? Like as a platform team, that is your goal. Right. It's that you can offer something better than that development team could build themselves. Because I'm sure like most development teams would happily give up having to manage all the way down to, you know, the the, the virtual machine layer or bare metal. They'd happily give up that if they could get a better reliable system that meets their needs from someone else. I mean, this is why like, you know, folks 15 years ago just started like, I'm just going to go to AWS. Like I can get basically what I need faster and cheaper than waiting on my internal IT department. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that error budget concept is, is I think really powerful. Um, and Can knowing you that, elucidate a bit on the error budget concept. Yeah, and I like I have to let me pull up because it's like the the classic is you just the the number of nines you have right is gives you the number of minutes per year or month or whatever you have of of downtime that you can tolerate. Mm. Um, and so let me see because it's like otherwise I have to do all the math. So error <laughs> budget. Calculator, air budget calculator. Yeah, you just Google oh, well. it and it's, oh, it's there, great. right? So, um, let me see. Some of these folks have just—they've already done the math on like how many minutes of downtime. That's what I'm trying to see if I can find. No, this mm -hmm. Sumo Logic article. Oh, here it is. Um, okay, if you have an error, an SLA, an SL, uh, yeah, SLA, and you want your SLA to be a little bit lower, an SLO of 99%, the error budget is 1%, and in a 28 day window, that's 6.72 hours of downtime. So, what that means is that as you're approaching a Friday, like if you've been tracking, it's just like your checkbook, if you've been tracking and you're like, uh, you know, we're coming up on a rolling 20 day window and like, we're nowhere near that 6.7 hours. Like we can take some risks, right? We can run that failure Friday. And because we we're actually like, we've got 
we're, we're, we've got budget. But if stuff is going on and you're looking, you're like, we are super close to hitting that uh, error budget limit. You might say, you know what? Code freeze, like on right. a Friday. Don't touch anything. Because, <laughs> like we just, we've got to figure out like other, there's enough things that have introduced instability. And so you, it, you can use it to make decisions on, uh, on like a very how, how much of, risk you're willing to take on yeah. given and that so yeah. that lets you um that lets you make just more like informed decisions about those types of resilience tests that you're going to run um but it also means that like the the folks who are going to be on call like they have they they know it's like hey listen we're about to blow through our error budget which means like you, we need to be ready to like respond. And so not let things pass through and like, I'll deal with it in the morning. Right. Whereas like, if you have, if you've got a lot of room in your error budget, it can, you can take a different approach of like, I'll get to it in the morning. Right. Like those are the kinds of, um, you so know, it gives you a framework to think about like how you make decisions and, and decide what risks you need to take or not take. Yeah. And the hard part is how do we start to explain this to a generation of developers who don't understand what balancing a checkbook is? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's like the analogy well, to would it make sense to managers too? I mean, especially up higher in the organization, the idea of an error budget, would it make sense to them? It sounds, it's kind of a weird idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think what um, I think what's hard there is that you can you get folks who have this sort of knee jerk reaction where they're just they just want to put the big number of like we are super available and like how available do you want to we want a hundred percent right and it's like that like walking through like well what does that cost versus what can we actually tolerate I think that is the hardest shift from like, especially folks, you know, where from an availability perspective on like the, the IT side, it was, you know, for years, it was just kind of like beaten into folks that it was like, no, no. And, you know, it's uptime. We just, that's what we're measuring on is uptime, which means you want that to be just as close to a hundred percent. There wasn't really deeper thinking about, does it actually need to be that? Um, you know, and which, what's the cost associated with that? Like yeah. I could certainly see people in management saying, saying, look, Google.com, it's got a hundred percent uptime and thinking that they could get that too. And it's like, oh, how much money is actually spent to get that kind of availability for something at that scale? And like, does that yeah. pr produce the value for commensurate value? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and you look at any type of IT service, right? That like, you, you know, there, there's like, there's a pain uh, associated with something is down, but the, the, there's like a mythology that's like, somehow people are supposed to always keep things up. It's like, how many times was it like, oh, the Wi-Fi is down in the office, right? It's, it's like, oh, you know, okay. Literally, I mean, yes. Was there some lost Humans are trained to tol tolerate failure. <laughs> Right. right. It's, it's those like, maxims of networking. Yeah. But it's the like network will fail. <laughs> yeah. It it's it will fail. And um and like, yeah, you want to build for resilience and and have like make it so that it's not something like, yeah, we, we can't tolerate six hours without the network or or everyone would be completely unproductive. But um but the reality is saying that it's 0% is like, does that ever happen? Like, are we, are we setting a standard that's like no one ever actually achieves anyways? Yeah. And, and then we're not thinking critically about what we actually have to deal with. Like what's. Have you ever read the book Waltzing with Bears? It's about, it's. Well, a lot of it's about estimation, um, like schedule estimation. That's the example that they use. But they go, everything is a probability curve. Yeah. And when you say 
give me your best guess. You know, give me what's the shortest amount of time you could do that. Well, if you look at that in terms of probability, that's the front tail of the curve. And the probability is zero that you will hit that. And then right. you have all of these other systems. And it's like, okay, what's the best we can do on all of these? All of them have a probability of zero. And what you need to do is move into the middle of the probability curve, which is the most likely situation. Right. But there's, boy, that's a hard concept to get across. Yes. There's, um, and there's a, a I'll, 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 I will join you in playing the have you read game. Um, uh, a book I started listening to over the summer, so I haven't finished it, but it's um, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. I've I started it. Yeah. Okay. So that's you've probably consumed the same amount, but like a really great um, you know, cognitive scientist turned uh poker player. But um this idea that it's just like you know, unlike chess where you have all the information that you need uh in order to make the exact best next move. And, and it's why like the master will always beat the novice, like unless, you know, the master was drunk. I don't know. Like, um, but it, there's, um, it's not really like life at all. <laughs> and so, you know, she kind of gets into the background of, you know, game theory being a lot more based on something like poker where you are, you are having to make a lot of decisions with imperfect information. And, but that means that sometimes like the best decision will not guarantee success. Uh, so I think the term is like resulting where it's like this judgment, it's a very natural human thing where we judge the outcome um, and, and then kind of critique like the decision to get there, even though it's like, well, actually given given the information that was available at the time, that was the best decision. It's just, you know, she talked about, it was like, you can just get unlucky. Right. And she gives an example of like some, some football thing where, you know, the, the coach called a play to do a pass and then it was intercepted. And it was like, well, actually like statistically speaking, it would probably would have worked better, but wow, the, the um, black swan event of that interception happening was really unlikely and and unfortunately like they got unlucky in that scenario but that's sort of that is a really to your point of like how do you get anyone in the organization to kind of embrace it is you have to start thinking in more of those like yeah probabilistic terms and like what's the um what's the 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 likelihood given the information that we have because again it's all of this is you are trying to operate an environment with imperfect information. Yeah, but all you have to do is run into one person who goes, well, just find the right answer. There's a right <laughs> answer. And who can't think, you know, in terms of probabilities. Yeah. Well, that's a hard problem, isn't it? But again, that's, it's a yeah, problem. Which is, to quote, Gerald Weinberg, no matter what they tell you, it's always a people problem. <laughs> it's the hardest part. You know, it is. The technology is the easy part. Um, but I think like what's gotten people's attention, right, is that the organizations that have been uh, successful with these types of Google being, of course, like, you know, the um, the the source oh, right, of, of yeah. the site reliability kind of approach, wrote the book. Um, and that then of course is like, well, so many folks admire it. Then that opens up the, uh, conversation of like, well, how do they do it? It's like, well, how they did it is they changed the way that they're thinking about the problem or they just were thinking about it differently the whole time. I don't know. But point is like when, when something that's successful and working starts to get associated with, you've got to think about this problem differently that is like the, the influence game to change people's minds or get people to at least like stop asking for the thing that like that doesn't actually make sense. Um, and here's now social proof, right? That like people are solving this problem a different way and it's working. Yeah. 
Mm, yeah, you need those proofs. Yeah. Okay, random question. Should you deploy on Fridays? <laughs> I think if you should you should be trying to get to the point where you can confidently deploy deploy on Fridays. I think that's abs- that's a great like aspiration. If you're if if that's gonna blow through your error budget, like yeah, maybe not today, like, but maybe you should be working towards that. Um, so, you know, it seems like a great goal of just like, yeah, sure. Like I have the confidence. We as a team have the confidence to deploy on Fridays. Like, uh, that's a great goal. Yeah. But how do you balance that with your air budget? And that's a good way to look at it. Right. And that might also mean that like generally, we feel good about deploying on Fridays, but this particular Friday we do not, right? Because of what we're seeing in our environment, and you know we've been shipping code every day, multiple times a day, and those are always some of the most likely sources of introducing instability. And it's it's not a game day; it's just literally we just ship code. So bringing in, for example, like you've got. Sure, you've got monitoring data and logs, but change events, right? Being able to pull in the data directly from, you know, your uh, CI/CD pipeline. That's like, yeah, we're we're tracking like every single change that you did, yeah. and marry that with, oh, and and then we also saw like an alert go off from Datadog, and then we we can go auto capture. This is another thing we didn't even get into is the idea of like now those complex environments, which is we talked about at the beginning where it's like at the end of the day, you want like one team to be accountable, but no one's in a vacuum and there's always other systems. Like the development teams don't necessarily have the keys to the underlying Kubernetes platform. They may not even have the keys to the database. They may, you know, not have the keys to the load balancer. So how do you avoid still getting in a situation where to, figure out like, okay, where's the smoking gun? How do I not have to go like interrupt six different people? Um, and they all get pulled in as basically guilty until proven innocent. Right. Um, right. And like that's the, something, that's an automation problem we've been working on, which is kind of, I like the, um, I think I heard you say something like look for ways to change the game. And I'm wondering if there's, if you can imagine other ways that we might change this game because because we've been looking at this i think a little bit like well i mean the example i gave with rust no garbage collector to tune no no you know no particular speed ups that you're going to be able to achieve um but also we've been looking at uh, zyverge's new golem system and that seems like that could be something that changes the game. It runs, first of all, in the um, WASM, yeah. runs mm-hmm. inside of WASM, and um, and it's all, uh, it, I mean, they, they, I mean, they're seriously changing the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a serverless model where you don't have to extrapolate state to another system. It's mm-hmm. like you're, you just build your application and it maintains state and can, you know, survive through crashes and restore state and all that. Anyway, it's, it's pretty fascinating. I think we'll hopefully talk to uh, John, John folks soon yep. about that. Um, I, let's see, there was another question I had for you. Oh, okay. We got to talk about AI because everything's all about AI these days. We got to, yes, yeah, we got to. But I don't want to talk about Gen AI. You know, that's like the the hot you know thing and and all that. Here's here's a crazy thing. It seems like like the the systems that we need to have in place to like do all this this reliability stuff well mm-hmm. are incredibly complex because the problems that they're solving are incredibly complex can we just like slap an AI on this and like make the AI like figure all this out? <laughs> um, so what's funny is, uh, at, you know, full disclosure, not an expert in AI, not really an expert in anything to be perfectly honest. That's not, that's not really in my, uh, description, but, um, there's, there's this, this kind of notion of AI ops, um, which, 
Is that AI doing ops or is that ops for AI systems? It's AI uh, helping with ops. Cool. Okay. Um, and so, which is, is you, what it sounded like, you said, like, can't we just have an AI help with this? Um, and it's not like a new term or concept. I mean, I think Gartner's been publishing market guides around it where, you know, they've, that just means like they are providing advice to buyers about these, the kinds of things you should look for, which means it's like, there's enough happening there for them to actually spend the time to do that. Um, but the sort of high levels, like basically you're using data and you're, you're analyzing it using machine learning and in order to help with these kind of operational tasks. And, uh, it gets it's strongly associated around monitoring and you see a lot of monitoring vendors start to talk about doing AI ops. But what's challenging is that um, the complexity isn't just what we have to do to make things reliable. The complexity is also um, like the, the architectures and patterns that we've adopted over time in order to be able to build what we need to build faster, right? And more reliably, like part of it, you know, of um, having uh, uh, sort of clean contracts between services so that one can gracefully fail and not, you know, take down everything else. Sure, that's part of it. But the other part is so that, you know, one team can make changes because it's not like this giant monolith that like no one can wrap their head around what's going on in there you know, you can just, you can reason over the code better. Like that's another really good reason to kind of break things apart, but it always then introduces like more complexity, right? You've broken things apart. You're, you've got a lot of new dependencies between stuff. Okay. So now all of those different parts of the puzzle and you've got your, your infrastructure layers, you know, platforms underneath it as well. All of those different pieces are generating events, right? I was just like, this happened, this happened, this happened. And how do you understand across all of those what's actually happening? And I'll give you an example of like a database failure since uh, like an underlying database can actually like touch a lot of different things and and make failures that are like, it's like I I call it the disturbance in the force. Well, it's funny that... Zencaster, our recording software, crashed right when Dormain was talking about the disturbance in the force. But we got things running again, so here we go, continuing after recovery from the crash. Okay, welcome back. Wow, that was such such a great thing to have happened in this particular conversation, because yeah. Zencaster just like totally, totally died. Like that was amazing. Like massive failure. Um, took us a while to get back to a working they state. They used up their budget for, yeah, I, for a while. I, I think that my last comment was something about like all the voices crying out <laughs> and being silenced. And then sure enough, we were silenced. So um, yeah, anyways, point is like you that can then, that, that'll trigger like 60 different systems to all send off an alert of like, I felt something, I felt something. And so that could be just a ton of noise and interruption for a bunch of different teams. So this is where, to your to your question, yes, you can use AI, if you will, which is really just kind of, in this case, fancy uh, machine learning in order to be able to recognize, like, these are all related. These mm-hmm. are all one thing. Like, that's one example of how... Putting the correlations across a large data set for you. Yes. Um, And so, you know, that that's really powerful because of all these layers of complexity and interconnected things where there's that, you know, a disturbance in the force event will cause, you know, a lot of other systems to feel something, maybe not catastrophically, um, but that can just be really, really noisy. And so how do you find the real, and then of course there's the side that's like, how do you, which we started with, like, how do you replace just like the customer calling in saying something is not working right. Um, 
but yeah, there's a lot that, uh, you know, whether you want to debate and call it, is it AI? Yeah. It's not well, generative. Yeah. It's not, it's not summarizing something for you, but it's, yeah. it's doing that. Um, it's that. helping a lot. Yeah. It's that's what I'm finding. Yeah. Uh, the generative stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think in this case, it's more about being able to have a ton of data and being able to kind of compress that down into more specific things. And so in the case of everyone's pagers going off all at once, maybe AI could help to narrow that down to, oh, here's like root cause or here's the component that actually is is underlying so we'll everyone's pagers. So we'll set off one person's pager instead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's like the cost of that, uh, you know, to an organization to have one person interrupted versus, you know, 50, like is huge, right? Not just like for the time there's like anytime you're interrupting developers, I, I call it like the double tax. There's like the time that it's going to take to get them engaged and what they have to do. But there's also the time that like they could have been spending on building whatever that thing was that you wanted them to build. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it's like a, that was going to generate some revenue and now it got pushed out like another week. Um, okay, well, there's a cost to that. So these are all just mm -hmm. opportunity costs, but that's, um, that's something that's really helpful. And being able to also do that where you're like, listen, you've got 50 different teams. They're not all using the same monitoring system. Like how, what's the, who's watching the watchers? Like, that's what you want. That's where you want to be able to do that type of processing as opposed to, can really, really fine tune my monitoring system, but like, how's that going to help you in a larger organization where you've got a bunch of different teams and, and there are dependencies? Um, that's that's kind of one aspect. Uh, and then there's also thinking about can we enrich the data, right? So that by the time we're actually pulling in that one person, what are they looking at? Mm -hmm. Like. What are data they, do they need to get to a resolution? Yeah. You know, it's it's one thing to be like, okay, I got an alert. It's another thing where it's like, what's the the next steps that they're gonna go do? There's like at least three legs of the stool, right? And I'm gonna then I need to go track down what were the changes that were made. Mm -hmm. Um, because eight times out of ten, it's probably there was a change that was so-called you know, air quotes planned change, but okay, it had an unplanned consequence. <laughs> yeah. and, then, the, and then that the tells AI you, might help you find those you things find that. quicker. You know? And like, you want to enrich what the person's looking at for that. And then there's, now I'm going to go find the logs. So it's like, well, what if the AI is also helping you bring all that together? Right. Go grab those, just go grab those logs. Like at the mm -hmm. point, like don't make the person have to go do that. Like, mm -hmm. Sure. Do that for the person. And that's where it's like the person is still going to be reasoning over what they're looking at, but you've saved yep. them like this sort of menial step. And it also may be like, well, you might have to grab logs from like four different places. You may not have access to all those places, which that gets back to the like, how many people do they have to then go interrupt just to be like, is the database loading data? Can you check? Cause like, I, I'm looking at my code, my code's fine. But like the network team is like, is there something going on in the load balancer? Right. Those are all the first, can you correlate the data? And then second, can you then get deeper diagnostics and state in order to be able to see, okay, what's the actual thing we need to restart or fix? I mean, that the restarts is also like a, a great thing. That's just like, just auto restart it, get the service restored. Because at the end of the day, if you're managing by way of an error budget, the goal isn't, can we get to the root cause and fix it, right? Like this is where there's there can sometimes be a divergence between um, the engineering team that would love to understand the root cause, but the root cause might be the $64,000 question. And it's, you don't actually need that to restore the service and get it back online. And like, that's, 
Yeah, and the service is provide. You know, it was working up until it hit that condition, so it's doing some of its job. And yeah. so, pro putting it back up will keep your system working as long as you're logging the problem, and eventually you get around to fixing. Yeah, it. if you if you spend all the time to get to the root cause and and try to solve it there, like you could blow through your error budget in that time. Mm -hmm. If you know, like, listen, uh. Let's let's grab some some state and some logs. Let's roll back to that last change or like restart that node or whatever. See if we can just get the system back online because then we're not bleeding error budget. So great. Now the service is back. Now we need to go and actually dig a little deeper. But like that's kind of like when the house is on fire, like that's not when you're doing the investigation to figure out was this arson? Like you're for, like, just get the family out of the house, put That's the fire out, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, deal with that. Then, then like the investigation team can come in and like pour over, you know, like what happened and everything. But sure, once the fire's out, <laughs> once the fire's out, like, yeah. but yeah, yeah, put the fire out. So yeah. that's, uh, I mean, that's kind of intense, but uh, yeah. I see so much of this running. No, I think it's a good analogy. You want something that sticks with you. I just, I don't know. I come back just with so many management problems involved here because not people don't understand that, you know, they don't mm -hmm. understand so many of the things that we've talked about here. And uh, you've, you've almost got to have your, got to be up to your elbows in the thing to understand what the issues actually are. And, management coming in and demanding it be this way or that way because they had a conversation on the golf course uh that yeah. just it just seems like a real that's a thing we need to have some some let's reset you know let's rethink this whole problem mm -hmm. issue that is another topic in terms oh, yeah. of convincing oh. people um that is a whole other can of squirrel. Well, it's a teaching process, really, which yeah. is unfortunate. But it's and also likely incentive, right? It's like, how do you understand? Teaching is also psychology, right? Mm. Um, what gets people's attention? What appeals to what people want? What understand what is it? What is it that they want? Um, and then frame what you're trying to explain in the terms of getting them what they want. Yeah. I think there's often challenges with like generally in most organizations, I'm sure that the people in charge of reliability or owning reliability aren't necessarily being incentivized to increase reliability. Mm -hmm. the, it's like, Oh, what feature did you add? The friend who, is in a organization that um, has kind of evolved from a engineering organization to a sales organization. And so their whole incentive is sell more stuff yeah. and everything else is just, you know, not as important. Yeah. And it's like, Oh boy. Yeah. Another people problem. Yeah. We... Oh. Well, <laughs> Some, um, some fun problems. Um, thank you, Dormain. That yeah. was uh, incredibly helpful learning about all this from me. So appreciate yeah, all your I wasn't insights. sure. I was like, I'm not sure to have enough to fill an hour, but I guess we did. Yeah, pretty easy. And we could probably keep going for yeah. more hours because this until is... Until we dropped. Until we dropped. Yeah. Until uh, Zencaster crashes again. That's true. That's <laughs> true. They're just sort of politely being like, come on. It's a Friday. Let me go. That's home. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They were trying to tell us we had gone too long. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, well, thank yeah. you so much, Romain. That was super yeah. fun. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. okay. Bye. Bye.